You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. On tonight's show, we will be discussing the highly anticipated Black Panther, the first Hollywood-produced black superhero film uh, and latest instalment to the, to the Marvel Universe, and Menasha, a film about a good-hearted but somewhat hapless grocery store clerk struggling against tradition. The film is predominantly in Yiddish with a cast of genuinely ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews, and although it's set in Brooklyn, it's a fascinating excursion into a tight-knit Jewish community rarely seen on screen. But first, Lady Bird is the directorial debut of actor-writer Greta Gerwig, whom many will know from her performances in films like Mistress America and Damsels in Distress and her collaborations with Noah Baumbach um, on films such as Greenberg and Frances Ha, which she co-wrote and starred in. But Lady Bird uh, stars Shirsay Ronan. Um, she plays Christine Lady Bird McPherson, a spiky and difficult teen at a Catholic high school on the brink of adulthood. Lady Bird is artistically inclined and to her mother's intense irritation she will no longer answer to Christine only to Ladybird. Ladybird clumsily navigates intense friendships, first loves and her relationship with her mother played by Laurie Metcalf before college and adulthood begin. It's a wistfully autobiographical coming-of-age story um, and it sort of plays as this sort of love letter to Gerwig's hometown of Sacramento, California, an equally um, passionate and difficult relationship with her mother and to her awkward teenage self who dreamed of escaping her hometown to a smart liberal, liberal arts college in New York. And I've just realised I haven't even introduced my co-hosts who <laughs> are all sitting in the room with me, um, the wonderful Cerise Howard, as Our always. Cerise Lady Bird uh, Howard, if you please. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sally Christie joins us again. Thanks for having me again. Um, and Stuart Richards, you're back. I'm back. Thank and I'm not you calling you me. Richards. <laughs> <laughs> you can Stuart. if you want. <laughs> um, uh, so what do we think of Lady Bird? It's won um, the award for Best Motion Picture at the Golden Globes and it's got a couple of noms at the, um, uh, for the BAFTAs and two Academy Award noms, I think, for Best Director and, and Best Original Screenplay. And it's only the fifth woman to be nominated for a Best Director at the Oscars remarkably. Um, Stuart, what did you think? I've had the pleasure of seeing this film twice now and I think a lot of the promotional material for this film reads as an offbeat indie coming of age film and that was my headspace when I went into it for the first time but I found it to be an incredibly effective film. There's a lot going on with this film. There's matters of class. Uh, I think being slightly poorer than your classmates and sort of not being able to recognise those two, um, unintentionally hurting your parents' feelings and being completely oblivious to that happening. Um, There's matters of sexuality and gender and I just... And religion as well, I thought was really interesting in the way that played out with the film, with how someone can... This is obviously not a spoiler. um, How someone can be an atheist and really rebel against the church while also having that space of the church and the choir music as something being familiar and comforting. It was a very loving portrayal of, of going to school in a Catholic church, wasn't mm, it? Yeah, she I, I th- she rebels against it so much, but it's so important to her and her identity. Yeah, I found this film to be incredible. I think the direction is superb. Uh, it's written so well. The performances uh I think very well done. I think the entire cast excels. And I really love how each of the characters 
uh, have their own agency and their own motivations and how each of these characters could easily be the leads in their own film. Um, they're all, which obviously sort of plays to a big theme of this film where Lady Bird is oblivious to everything going on around her. Um, I um, saw something really interesting with Greta Gerwig talking about that and how, I forget the brother, her brother and his girlfriend's name, but they had entire backstories of where they met, how they lived in a commune together and that's how they started dating each other and how they dressed the same. So she had really fleshed out mm. backstories for every single character to the point where it's like, yeah, you could follow all of them and you could get a completely separate film. Mm. Yeah. It is a very charming film. Uh, Sasha Ronan, I'm not sure just how old she actually is, but she's I think definitely she's about 24. Yeah, I a think. Good, good deal older than her character. Yep. But the film, 23. I'm not sure if Very it was close. makeup or the absolute absence of makeup, but she was. Um, youthened very effectively uh, through, um, well, I don't know what exactly, but she bore something that I very seldom see in teen films, which tend to airbrush their teens, but she had acne scarring. I, I, was, I was so impressed, actually. Mm. I thought this is actually a teen film that means to give a, a bit of grit and a bit of sense of actual teen uh, experience. And... Um, and so I was really touched by that. The film itself was grainy. I, I, I don't know whether it might have been shot on 16mm. Um, I could easily believe it if it had have been. Even if it, if it wasn't, it, it still had that lo-fi look to it that just gave it a, a greater realism, a greater authenticity. And I don't know if that authenticity was contrived, but it still came across as an uh, authentic look and feel. And, and this... I, if Greta Gerwig pulled a lot of this from her own autobiography, I could certainly believe it because everything in the fabric of this film was believable, including the love-hate relationship you might have with somewhere that you... Actually, if you're true to yourself, you're honest to yourself, you're embarrassed about. And mm. she's, Lady Bird is mortified by her own um, slightly... Uh, she's not underclass at all. She's just sort of a lower-middle-class kid amongst some upper-middle-class kids at school. And she's aspirational in that very teen way, that very mm. earnest way. I also just love the earnestness in the film, uh, especially at its peak in the, the first high school musical staging we see, which is just magnificently naff. I <laughs> adored it. So, I mean, there's so much humour in this film. There's a lot of a lot of laughs, but the laughs aren't forced either. Yeah, I think the one thing that I really loved about this was um, Lady Bird's relationship with her mum, uh, which is obviously, I think, the backbone of the film. But I think teenage girls' relationships with their mothers are so complex and they're so difficult sometimes. And, yeah, there was such an authenticity about it that it was so believable. And they were both at... All the characters in the film at some point are really flawed and but I felt with those two it was, you know, you saw their tenderness and you saw their hard side but, you know, they were very believable characters, really well fleshed out. So, yeah, like I said, all of the characters felt that way, even um, the Timothy Chalamet character, he still had a human side after, you know, not being such a good guy, all that that kind of thing. Yeah, was, yeah. yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it, not as much as I thought I would, but I think had I, it did speak to my teenage self. Oh, so for I, sure. I yeah. imagine if, you know, ha, mm. if I had been watching it as a teenager, I might have enjoyed it a bit more. I know that the cinema that I saw it in was full of um, people over the age of 30 and they just loved it. They were applauding mm. at the end of wow. the film. So it had a real impact on them. Um, yes, 
I agree. Laurie Metcalf is the mother was was a wonderfully nuanced performance. Um, but what I would have liked to see more of was her relationship with her best friend, and I think it's something that. Um, Greta Gerwig does so well, particularly in France's Heart, which I loved, um, which was such a, a wonderful portrayal of female friendship um, and how intimate it becomes. Um, in this film, uh, Lady Birds uh, and her best friend um, are incredibly close, and then Lady Bird sort of branches off, um, you know, to seek the cool group and and sex with boys and all this sort of stuff, and um, and then sort of you know. Um, is drawn back to that friendship, but I I felt that there wasn't a lot of exploration in I, I, into that the depths of that relationship. Mm. It just sort of it fizzed and then it rekindled and and that was in. I would have really liked to see a bit more of that um, because I think Gerwig does it so well. She she does women so well, um, and it's great to see um, this. I guess this film comes at a at a good time, doesn't it? You know, given. Um, what's been happening politically and within Hollywood with the Me Too movement and stuff. It's it's a film about a woman written by a woman, directed by a woman, and or a young woman, I should say, being about a young woman. So, yeah, I, I did enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I'd, 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 rate, I'd rate seeing it. But, I, but, yeah, as a coming-of-age sort of film, yeah, it wasn't remarkable to me either, you know? Yeah. I, I sort of get that. Yeah. I, I saw this just two days after seeing Heathers on oh, the big yeah, screen yeah. at the Astor, and I... I the films are of quite different comic sensibilities. One's extremely dark, um, very funny until it really ceases to be funny, actually. I've forgotten just how dark and nasty Heathers actually gets. But there are a lot of parallels. Uh, this whole business of social climbing of, of teens, and I don't think this is gender-specific at all, but the, a lot of people going through uh, their teenage lives in the high school environment and ultimately beyond it too are so desperate not just to fit in but to somehow be uh, important, to, to be popular. It's always that, that, that great teen trope, the, the quest for popularity. And it's, I felt it quite profoundly in Lady Bird and Heathers. It sort of played for dark laughs amongst the, you know, the clique of Heathers and how Veronica is hanging out with them in order to... You know, the Winona Ryder character, for anyone's forgotten Heathers or hasn't ever seen that wonderful, now 30-year-old wow. dark comedy. Wow. Yeah. yeah, 30. That's, that ages Ooh. you, doesn't it? Yep. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but Lady Birds, uh, yeah, for, that, for what it has in common with that film, that um, rather than playing it for that, that really mordant humour here, it, it's really touching. I understand so, so well, find so relatable Lady Bird's quest to... To be um, somehow not not better, but just to to feel that she's mm. better, and and that her lot in life is um, somehow more uh, something she can control, and she can somehow harness the popularity of others and, and ride their coattails. But also, it's a big fib. Mm. And I really liked um, the way that the the popular girl that she does make friends with was in the film too. That she wasn't just a total bitch. She was also just. She was quite likeable, mm. you know, when she sort of, you know, maybe finds out that Lady Bird doesn't have as much money. It's not a problem for her. Mm. Um, but her lying was a problem. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. she yeah. Yeah. values yeah. honesty. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so she values honesty. She wasn't concerned about her not being as rich. So, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting portrayal because we don't normally see that in a teen film. We'd normally just have her being a bitch. Yeah, it was, that's it. it was quite... It sort of emitted a lot of bitchiness yeah. that you'd normally see, yeah. didn't it, which was quite was quite nice. And I like the, the use of the word earnest. I think that's really apt um, in her performance... And 
and in I think Gerwig's Gerwig's storytelling, um, it's 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 subtle and honest, and I think um, Shirse, Shirse, I could, Shirse. 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 something like that. Some Shirse Irish. Ronan. Shirse. 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 I've lost my train of thought, but I think um, oh, that's right. I, I, I like how goofy she is. Like she's really goofy, but earnest and and awkward, but confident. And I like that about um, Gerwig's characters. There's a confidence to them, uh, even though they're not cool, you know. Mm-hmm. I, and I and I find that really appealing. And I imagine young people would find that really appealing. Speaking of words, after. Uh, I watching the film, I was really interested to find out that the Australian edit of the film uh, cuts out the the C word and replaces it with the word coos. What? Which I found oh, really interesting. That what, is interesting. What does coos mean? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be a... I know what I, I, the other word means. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what and is. there's also a scene when she buys smokes and Playgirl for the first time. That scene is extended in the original cut where she looks at... Um, all of the wondrous male genitalia in Playgirl and mm. that was cut out of the Australian edit which I found really, really interesting. Mm. That was quite a funny scene actually where I, she's like, turns 18 or something and goes, is it 18 there? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I did the exact same thing. Yeah. I went and got a tattoo and just did the exact bought same stuff. Bought a Playgirl <laughs> and bought some cigarettes <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. and some alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested in seeing Lady Bird, it's on wide national release at the moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Black Panther is Marvel Comics' latest superhero blockbuster with a largely black cast. It's actually the biggest since Straight Out of Compton, Straight Out of Compton, I think, which had which used to claim you know the number one position as largest black cast, um, and with uh, many African American key creatives like Lamar and director director Ryan Coogler, whose previous films include Creed. Um, the film is being widely acclaimed as a cultural turning point in its portrayal of black identity. Um, the film follows Chala, the king of Wakanda, and African nation that appears to be just another struggling country of the developing world full of fields, farmers and African plains yet underneath the scenery scenery literally is the real Wakanda a supremely wealthy and high tech African nation that exists in a secret domain beneath the landscape its evolution has been accelerated by the power of a metal called vibranium that also allows Chala to assume superpowers including a slick protective panther suit thus becoming Black Panther who previously appeared in Marvel's Captain America Ah, Civil War, I think it was. Um, Wakanda has never been colonised, but its wealth and technology have also been hidden from the world, protected by a force field, and therein lies the conflict between Chala and Killmonger, a forgotten enemy, Eric Killmonger Stevens, played by Michael B. Jordan, who was also the lead in Creed, I think, challenges Chala's position as King and Black Panther. As a Marvel comic character, the Black um, Panther first emerged in 1966 in an issue of the Fantastic Four, a totem of black strength and identity. It later became a series in its own right thanks to acclaimed writer Ta-Nehisi Coates, which I didn't know till just recently. Um, but it is the new Hollywood film um, with a largely black cast and key creatives which has created global ripples. What did we make of Marvel's first black superhero series? <laughs> As someone who's not really a fan of superhero films, I actually couldn't wait to see this. I couldn't wait uh, to see what this film could be. And in fact, what it turned out to be, it's incredible. It's, um, and that's not just because there are so many African-American and African folk uh, involved in this film. It's just that it, 
it has an incredible authenticity to it, which seems a very strange thing to say about a film that is so much based around science fiction and, and things that are presently impossible. Um, uh, the super heroics in this, uh, I mean, this, this incredible suit and its variations within the film to do with an extremely advanced technology that is certainly not in possession of anybody on this planet, let alone uh, an amazing invisible empire in a fictitious land in, in Africa. I, um, but it's just more that the, the, the Africanness of this film and, and how much it's willing to engage upon, um, engage with colonialist discourse and to really go there and call it out. Uh, it's fierce and wonderful and it made me so happy on so many, so many levels and it's staggeringly beautiful. Um, so many African nations, cultures and representatives are on screen. It's, it's visible. It's, it seems to be in the fabric of the film and that's really saying something because an awful lot of this film is probably really animation more than live action. But it's... Uh, I, I, I had so, so much fun with this and I, I enjoyed it from early on seeing a a non-existent museum in, in Britain being robbed, but not until uh, some museum staff has been lectured upon their um, thievery, the practices upon which such institutions are often built, um, to uh, tribes of uh, fierce women warriors. I mean, yes, you know, if I had one little uh, quibble, it's that Black Panther is, it still comes from a patriarchal society, but at least the women are incredibly ferocious and you just <laughs> seriously don't want to tangle with them. I loved this film a lot. The costumes in this film were sensational. My absolute favourite bit of it. And so it was Ruthie Carter who did the costumes, who I haven't really seen her work in a lot of other things, but she was just phenomenal. And I'm not a huge Marvel fan either, but I came away from this thinking, oh, yeah, that, that was that was pretty entertaining. But I've thought about it nonstop all day today. And um, like you were saying, Cerise, with the importance of just throwing that colonialism in your face, like it's just so bold and so brave and so important that we've got these representations of um, African people on our screens. Like it is so important that we have this now, particularly with everything that's going on in our newspapers with African gangs and just all the negative stuff to have, I, I think, yeah, it's... I think it's going to be a very important film. There's been a lot of, um, you know, social and moral expectation mm. weighted on this film, and I think that in itself feels like resistance. Yeah. Um, whether it is or not, though, I don't know, because it's coming out of a Hollywood machine that's run mostly by white men. Um, I sort of felt that there was, like, some missed opportunity here. The, the, the main character, Charla, um, who is the handsome hero king, who inherits the throne at the beginning of uh, the film and drinks some sort of magical potion to become the Black Panther uh, in this sort of hidden world um, uh, within Africa, um, is challenged by someone else called Killmonger, who I mentioned in the intro. And, and I don't know, for me, I, I sort of like my heroes laced with a bit more moral ambiguity. And I think that, that actually Killmonger embodied that much better than Charla. I just didn't care about Charla at all. I felt very sympathetic. <laughs> towards Killmonger as well. Yeah. Particularly one thing he said towards the end was really beautiful and profound. Which but I, I love that about mm. the film. Yeah. I love that uh, T'Challa, his whole journey and his character arc um, is all about learning from those around him. Mm -hmm. uh, with the Marvel films and 
I don't claim to be an expert. I've seen one, one or two, but so often those films, there's always like a central white guy called Chris at the the, the centre of those films that's quite cocky and just drives those films and what they think is right. Um, where T'Challa, he's all about um, learning from those around him mm. um, and majority of them being women, um, which I did love. And I think part of this journey is, uh, this film is T'Challa and Killmonger both coming with very different perspectives on um, sort of a lot of sort of the the politics um, so that sort of surround sort of uh, Wakanda. And T'Challa is also learning from Killmonger as well. Um, so obviously this character will continue to grow over the next films. Um, so I, I think sort of his character arc isn't finished yet. No, and it was, yeah, it, there was a nice sort of, there was a nice he had a nice shift in the end but to me it didn't feel big Mm. enough I sort of felt like why did we have to go through this massive journey where um, T'Challa the king is challenged by Killmonger um, and the resolution that you get out of that challenge could have been done a lot quicker if that was all Mm. we were going to get from it I'm trying not to make spoilers (laughs) it's very difficult Um, I just sort of felt that I felt that the, the conflict was the moral core of the film and mm. Killmonger, um, it, he sort of embodied everything, every sort of fury and frustration that mirrors so many of uh, uh, so many black people and that sort of tumbled out of that conflict between him and T'Challa but I don't think the film properly explored any of that and they reduced Killmonger to a villain and mm. I actually think that, that there was... You know, by the end, you sort of—I just sort of was like, "Whose side am I on now?" I didn't—I didn't care for T'Challa. Killmonger's main issue with um, T'Challa and Wakanda is that they've had this power to help uh, all of those oppressed in the world beyond theirs, and that they haven't used it. And he's furious about it. He's mm-hmm. grown up in the projects in America, and he comes back to Wakanda um, to sort of, you know, wage war. And I—and I just thought. Uh, I, I thought it was a, a, a shame that he then becomes the villain of the film and I thought that, that, that was it was strange when they're trying to sort of um, fight white colonisers but then it becomes a, an in-fight, in you know what I mean? It's definitely telegraphed um, that future films will have this king um, look to be a little more interventionist in the ways of the wider world Um as to whether that is done through diplomacy, as one might expect from a certain little coda in the film, or through extreme violence, which is uh, Killmonger, hence the name Killmonger. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's basically arm all the black people and overthrow all of the white people. So I, I guess, um, I mean, T'Challa I, I, is, is positioned as sort of a Mandela-like character, only without the wisdom at first. And he has to... One, one of his great battles, actually, along the way, his getting of wisdom is having to uh, enter a role where his, which his father had previously occupied and perhaps his father isn't all that he had imagined him to be. So there's this real conflict there, I think, is almost the biggest conflict in the film for him, is to, is to unravel a myth, uh, presumably en route to becoming one himself. Um, I, I'm... I dread the idea of Black Panther becoming something that gets all um, caught up in the rest of the often ludicrous Marvel, Marvel universe. Because universe. Yeah. Mm. this film to me was so self-contained. This was this was a universe that I couldn't exactly say I could believe in it, but I was happy to mm. that it uh, that it made it. There weren't other suddenly you know Norse superheroes or 
or Incredible Hulks or... Uh, Are you talking about Thor Ragnarok? Because I liked well, that. Well, I, 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 I did enjoy that too, but just the idea of that permeating the universe of this one film, it would, to me, totally actually ruin it. Mm. This, this film feels presently, this this Black Panther character and, and the the universe within the film just feels uncontaminated by all the rest of that nonsense. And I, I'm probably a bit utopian to think it won't be. Um, but, yeah, for now, I, I'm, I'm very happy with where this has already come, mm. wh- where it goes next, I don't know. I, I agree that, that like most of the Marvel films that I've seen, and I've not seen that many, but they're just full of plot holes, um, particularly actually Thor Ragnarok, which I did I did really enjoy, but I enjoyed it for the direction of um, Taika Titi. Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi. I think I enjoyed his humour that he brought to that film, and also I just found the action sequences really thrilling. But I agree with you, this is a much more self-contained film, but I found, you know, the, the performances, the cast were amazing. The soundtrack was even better, and it was really watchable. But I just, I just found the drama weak and the plot a bit lame as well, you know. But I, I I'm, I'm glad that this exists in the world, you know. And I'm, and I think that it's definitely, a, a, hopefully, <laughs> a step in a, a better direction. And you know, it comes off the back of films like Moonlight, of Get Out, and they've got such great r- response um, that you know, it, it's, it's hopeful. But you know, like I said before too, though, that these films. Films are um, greenlit by white Hollywood execs, so who knows? <laughs> well, weirder still is apparently Black Panther was originally conceived as a comic character by white men. Mm. Yes, I, I, I suspect the sensibility has shifted since that initial conception. But, well, yeah. well, it was taken up by Tanahisi Coots, um, which I'd, I guess I didn't know till recently. But that was amazing. I didn't know that until five minutes yes, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, also, uh, it's the the name. The, they came up with the name Black Panther before the political party. It was in the same year, oh, 1966. Really? Mm. And then the political party, um, yeah, I, I don't know. They have said it's a coincidence yeah. that it came from there, but it also meant that they changed the comics name, I think, in 72 really briefly to back, um, to Black Leopard because they didn't want to be associated with the political party, but then switched it back, which, yeah, I thought for that to both happen in the same year is, is pretty interesting. Some collective, yeah. con- collective mm. consciousness stuff going on there. For sure. Um, yeah, I just wanted to quickly mention that... Uh, Ryan Coogler, in preparing for this film, got a lot of key creatives that he was more comfortable working with rather than working with a lot of the um, the house Marvel uh, cinematographers and, and all that. Um, so I think... So even though, yeah, Marvel is this, is this big machine... Um, Ryan Coogler still kind of made it his own um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with these characters um, I did love that the only two white characters in the film were just used as narrative devices to further develop all of the other characters yeah. um, and I just loved the character Shuri um, who played uh, um, T'Challa's younger sister mm. uh, Letitia Wright she's been in quite a few great TV shows Black Mirror, Banana and Cucumber um, and I think it's really great that we're getting all of these black performers um, in this huge film and getting these huge audiences. She, she was the Q in James Bond terms, wasn't she? She oh, was so uh, fantastic. Was so Bondian. Uh, <laughs> she was. Yeah. I thought all the cast was outstanding. Mm. And actually, on the white actors, I really liked seeing Andy Serkis in something that wasn't yeah. green screened. It was yeah, great. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, for those who don't know, he, he, he played um, Gollum in the Lord of the Rings films and I think pioneered a lot of that technology the as well. Capture. He's the go to guy, especially for eight. He's been King Kong. He's yep. been various uh, other apes. 
and uh, yeah, you do actually all too seldom see him on screen. He's actually a very charismatic actor, and he's a good baddie. He was remarkable. I yeah. thought it was really wonderful. The, the only other film that comes to mind where I've seen him on screen, and he was actually in a leading role. Even he played Ian Jury in uh, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, the oh, wow. biopic of Ian Jury. He was fantastic. So happy yeah, to see more of him. Too. Me too. It was good to see him get a turn, and I enjoy Martin Freeman because I'm a fan of The Office. Yeah. If anyone's seen that, he was great as a little a little sidekick. But they were like the only white characters yeah, of note, really. Yeah, but yeah, um, and on that direction and stuff, I just sort of, I just felt that yeah, there was some missed opportunities there with camera work and stuff. I felt that the, it was a, a little bit. Um, uh, lame, I suppose. <laughs> like the, yeah, the, yeah. It sort of lacked the excitement that you got from Thor Ragnarok, which was not by nowhere, not even close to an, as, an, as an important film as this one is. Um, but I got a lot of thrill, you know, that sort of thrill, the roller coaster thrill that you get from a Marvel film, I got from Thor Ragnarok, um, but I didn't get it from this at all. Yeah. Uh, I just felt they were often a bit blurry, the, fl- the, the action sequences, and a bit sort of rudimentary. Um, and there was some sort of, there was some, a couple of great scenes with some great camera movement but they were just too few and far between and I just wish they had have had more energy I think is what mm. it was sort of lacking for me but on the whole yeah it's, I'd still recommend everyone sort of see it. Yeah, and, and as big a screen as possible. Absolutely. I, I really big, enjoyed big, big. seeing it on a so called extreme screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I saw this film at Hoyt's uh, yesterday and someone answered their phone in the oh, middle of the film. No. Right next to me. I almost yeah I've never been a violent person but <laughs> oh I would have been I saw, oh. it, I saw it at a big Hoyt cinema too with a group of friends last night and um, there's a moment in the film where somebody says um, well who's going to save the day or to some, that, something to that effect and someone in the background just went you will <laughs> it was very sweet three triple R Next, we will be discussing director Joshua Z. Weinstein's Menashe. Uh, set deep in the heart of New York's notoriously secretive Hasidic Jewish community, Menashe, a good-hearted but somewhat hapless grocery store clerk, clerk sorry, struggles against tradition to keep custody of his only son after his wife passes away. Though an American drama, the film is predominantly in Yiddish language. The talent pool from which Weinstein was casting had almost, to a person, never seen a movie. They lived in communities devoid of radio, let alone TV, cinema, smartphones, or the internet. Um, he got great performances out of them remarkably. I don't know how he did it. Um, and he sort of said in his notes, these individuals may be intimidated to leave their homes, fired from their jobs, and even lose custody of their children. Um, just knowing that, to me, the story was less fascinating than the world it depicted, um, which was almost documentary in style, a strange sort of hybrid of drama documentary that gave a a rare insight into a world that I knew nothing about. What did others make of this film? I really loved it. I kind of went in not knowing much about it and I thought it was so sweet Um, and also quite sad too. It was interesting you saying about how it's almost documentary because I know that Weinstein, his background is in documentary, like he'd done some work on the death and life of Martha P. Johnson and um, things like that. And that... I think the reason why he wanted to make this film because he said he was sick of travelling so much with doing documentary, he wanted to do a film that was like a documentary but be able to stay at home and he just started test screening some actors and fell in love with them and they kept having to adapt the script as well because people would leave, you know they they didn't want to see themselves on film or anything like that so I know that initially the 
character that is the brother-in-law that is sort of um, Menashe's sort of main source of conflict. That was originally meant to be a father-in-law, but the older male that was playing him left and so they replaced him with a younger actor and all this kind of interesting stuff. And I think it's really sweet as well that the, the main actor, whose name is also Menashe, the first time he ever went to a cinema was to see this film at Sundance. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, that was the first time he ever saw a film at the cinema was, yeah, the, his own film that he was in. But I thought, yeah, it was really tender. I thought it was beautifully shot. Um, it was intriguing because it's sort of something that I knew nothing about. I love the score. It reminded me a lot of a Nick Cave and Warren Ellis score. It was, yeah, a really beautiful film. I was surprised by it. It's amazing, isn't it? I had no idea that these communities... Yeah. I mean, I'm, I might, might be I'm quite ignorant, but, um, but yeah, I had no idea that these really sort of closed Hasidic communities existed in boroughs in Brooklyn yeah. and, and surrounds um, and, and are really quite sort of closed off from the wider community. It was a really fascinating insight into a world which I knew very little about. What did you think, Stu? Uh, yeah, I thought it was really quite a heartbreaking film. Um, Menasha really wanting to be a good father uh, and also to really commit to his religion, uh, which as well I know something very little about, um, but also just being this kind of bumbling character that's constantly tripping up and, and also getting frustrated with his son as well. The performance uh, by uh, Menasha Lustig, I think, was incredible. Lots of layers, really... I think quite a complex performance. The, the The son was a really interesting character because he was so hard to read. I thought that too with him. There was yeah. one point where um, he had called the uncle. Yeah. And I was like, what? Why are you doing that? But exactly the same. I thought that he was a very difficult character mm. to read. Yeah. And usually I would really hate that in a film. But I, I, I think, I guess the point of view of this film coming from Menasha... He's trying to get to know his son and he's trying to be a good dad, but just really not knowing how to navigate that, I found really interesting. Um, I did get frustrated with the brother-in-law mm. character. Uh, um, uh, so he's the, he's the one that sort of... Um, that's taken custody. taken custody of, of the yeah. son. So we, I should probably give it more context, but um, the film basically is that Menasha um, has lost his wife and in this community, if you don't have... He has a son and in this community, if you don't have a wife, you can't raise the child as a man, as a sole parent. You have to go meet the ma matchmaker. Um, it all sounds very Fiddler on the Roof <laughs> and it kind of is. Um, and you have to sort of, you know, re-wed uh, in order to raise your own child. And so Menasha is resistant to that and mm. so he's son is being raised by is it his sister-in-law or something it's, or um yeah his sister-in-law so. yeah and mm. and yeah. and her husband the uncle who you're talking about yeah. Stu, yeah go on yeah. yeah i just found him to be incredibly one note um yeah there was just no grit there i don't think there was it was just obviously he's doing it because he loves his family and and he's taking this kid in because he he's also very committed to his religion but I, I just found every scene he was in, it was the same facial expression and just the same, um, I guess, that, that same antagonism yeah. there. And I, that was one thing that became quite frustrating, in, even at the very, very end. I mean, this character hasn't grown one bit. And considering it's such a small cast, um, yeah, I found that to be... Uh, I think too you need someone in, in that sort of role in a film like this because you need someone utterly unflexible and unyielding uh, reflecting the actual society and mm. its and the, its dictates. Uh, Menasha goes to see the rabbi time to time and exasperates him no end because he wishes 
he's very brazen in the fact he wishes to defy him. Mm. And the rabbi and that whole society, in fact, don't brook any dissent. They're, they're, they, it is a, clearly a very inflexible mm. culture. Mm. Um, and I can only imagine how exasperating that, that would be because, uh, I mean, myself, I struggle with authority daily but still manage to generally kick against the pricks once in a while <laughs> and feel quite... I'm quite happy about that, but Menashe here is in such a bind because he doesn't want to be shoehorned into some sort of relationship with someone who doesn't probably really want to be with him either. Because let's be honest, he's not the greatest catch. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> oh, you really, I really feel for him the whole. He's trying to better himself and he's trying to improve, and it's just it's frustrating to watch him consistently just stuff up over and over and over again with that. And he tries so hard mm. to even fulfil the role of the woman in that society yeah, by, yeah. Ba- by making, making the yep. traditional foods for the wake and all this oh, sort of stuff. That's quite painful. It's so painful. Mm. Um, but you can see that he there's this sort of struggle with um, culture and religion for him because he there are scenes where he's drinking with all these um, older men and really is, is taken in the moment of the song and the dance and the ritual and you can see him almost sort of lose his body, which which I thought was a beautiful thing, which happened, you know, most societies have these sort of rituals that we partake in, whether in Australia it's just drinking at the pub on Friday night, but um, <laughs> but in this community it was sort of this sort of song and drink that happened and I thought that that was a real, they were really beautiful moments because it, it showed his, um, the bind that he was in, you know, being taught, to, you know, sort of stuck in this culture but that he really loves but, but not being able to do what he wants to do, which is just the simple thing of raise his own son. Yeah. And and the son, like you said, Stuart, yeah, he was really ambiguous. But I kind of identified with him a little bit because being their child of divorced parents, um, mm. there's this thing that children, I think, uh, do where they try to please everybody. They want to please both sides. And I think so he sort of was ambiguous like that. And I remember sort of being like that as a child. You know, you don't want to upset your dad. You don't want to upset your mum. And um, sort of that being stuck in the middle. I thought that was actually captured kind of nicely and, and quite it was quite real, like the whole film really. Mm. Yeah. I loved Menashe's way of trying to win him over with the, the chicken and also that he fed him cake and coke for breakfast and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very dad, yeah, dad's exactly. way to raise like, a child. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a lovely film, and like we say, it's it's a cast of non-actors too. So um, you sort of you, you can't I, I, like the, the uncle character that you talk about, Stuart, who um, it, it, yeah, he does sort of play one note. But I found him to be so authentic. Every mm. time he spoke, even his his voice, that sort of thick Jewish uh, accent and tone, I, I quite loved it. Well, let's go to language again, just quickly too. Yiddish. The yeah. film's in Yiddish. <laughs> How many films? Are in Yiddish. Completely in Yiddish. Very and the director, set in America. Yeah. And the director doesn't speak Yiddish. So there had to be a translator on set as well. That's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I find reading about this film and how it's been made just as interesting as the film itself. Yep. It's quite extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, if you would like to uh, see Menasha, Am I saying it right? Yeah. Menasha. 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 Yeah. Menasha. Um, it's on limited release. I know you can see it at Cinema Nova in Carlton and possibly at some Palace Cinemas. I'm not 100% I, sure. I would imagine it would be on at the Classic and the Lido very probably because it's um, it, it opened the Jewish... International Film Festival this year, uh, last year, late last year, mm-hmm. which is headquartered at the Classic. So I expect it to be in amongst that uh, string of cinemas as well. 
Terrific. Um, well, tonight we've spoken about Black Panther and Lady Bird, which are on wide national release. Um, and you've been listening to Cerise Howard, Sally Christie, Stuart Richards, and myself, Lisa Kovacevic, with production coordination and podcast editing by Faith Everard. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.